0: Welcome to the Food Grower Podcast, the podcast that tells the story, highlights the techniques, and talks tactics with food growers from all around the world.
1: From market gardeners to allotment holders, field farmers to urban farmers. We want this podcast to inspire you to grow food or help you on your already existing food empire.
0: I'm Chris from Fanfield Farm.
1: I'm Jack from Jack's Patch. It's our pleasure to introduce today's guest, Mitch, otherwise known as Mitch Grows on Instagram.
2: Mitch. I'm not bad thank you Jack. How are you doing?
1: Yeah good bro. It's good to see you again like we recently caught up at My Patch and we had a really good day together man so I'm like it's a pleasure to get chatting to you and know a little bit about your story really and I think that's just going to segue straight into the first question bro and that's like just tell us a little bit about about you and then what you do.
2: Well I'm Mitch and I'm a former chef. Ten months ago, I switched East London for the East Coast. And I've now set up an organic kitchen garden in Suffolk and started to document my progress on Instagram and other social medias to help inspire other people and just let my friends know what's going on.
0: Yes, yeah, wicked. Awesome. And that switched from being a chef as well to, to growing the food, the other side of it was that a decision or was that forced on you or
2: growing food is something that I've always been interested in, but growing up cool. in London, it was a bit difficult, <laughs> you know, outside spaces in London, uh, a very sought after and not very available. Mm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I've, I've always found that you've got to wait. I think I've said this on a previous podcast, pretty morbid, but you've got to wait for people to die in London to get an allotment. So exactly. space, space is mega hard to acquire. Um, so if you are into growing, like we always say, like microgreens or like if you've got a patio, herbs and pot plants. But yeah, man, if you if you're as passionate as as you are, as we can see through like Instagram and stuff, I bet you just was itching to get going.
2: Yeah, I had it all kind of um mapped out before we moved to Suffolk. I was I had all of my seeds ready to go. I had everything, all the beds organized before I'd even planted anything really raring to go
0: i love that
2: tell us a little bit about that space that you've got how, how big is it so my actual vegetable garden i need to measure it actually it's probably uh i don't know 50 meters long by about 10 meters wide yeah
1: it, it, it's super abundant though from what what we're seeing like pictures online like the it, it looks great man when you do little walkarounds or Little cuts of reels, you see, real different pockets of the garden, like the teepee.
2: Yeah, so I've just tried to to plant as much in this small space as I as I can, and interplanting with lots of different flowers to attract beneficial insects and pollinators, and also to make a pretty place and somewhere that you want to be.
1: Yeah, it's like seen as more of like a, a peaceful space of garden. Like if I'm ever stressed out, go back to the like. Sometimes it can be on the farm being stressed out, but everything around you is like telling you to calm down, take a second to enjoy it.
2: Absolutely. You know, there's uh, something rather relaxing about being in your own garden space and seeing something grow or seeing something you planted. And then you see a bee or or hoverfly land on this flower that you've planted and you're like, well, without me, that wouldn't have never happened.
0: Yeah, man, it's an amazing feeling. We put in a pond here last year and like we were hoping the clay would be enough to hold the water and all that. And then it wasn't. And we thought like it was a massive failure. But it's actually full now because of all the rain we've had this season. And you're just seeing, yeah, like dragonflies and the heron came down the other day. I think it was disappointed because there's no fish in there. But <laughs> you think, hang on, if I hadn't have done that, even though I thought it was a failure, if I'd not dug that. That they wouldn't be coming to this area. They wouldn't be travelling across the top of this field and dropping down. So, um, yeah, it's a great feeling, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. And actually, the other night, I was out in the garden and I saw a hedgehog in my veg patch, which was just yes. amazing.
1: Pest control.
2: Oh, absolutely <laughs> pest control. I need an even army of hedgehogs, mate. <laughs> <laughs> We've actually got a nature cam because um, my girlfriend has horses in, in her feed shed. We, we've got cats and we wanted to know if our cats are still coming to eat the food. Mm. And on the nature cam, we picked up two hedgehogs eating the cat's food.
0: Oh, nice. <laughs> well, that's yeah. a trick if you want to train some hedgehogs then. Get some cat yeah. food in the veg garden. <laughs> yeah. So going back a bit, man, did um, like being a chef lead you to wanting to grow great food? Was there a connection there or was it something that just sort of naturally progressed and happened?
2: So naturally, I'm interested by food. Being a chef, uh, I've always been driven by food. And the older I got and the wiser I got, I've always wanted to know where our food comes from and the process that goes into making our food. So, I guess it was a connection that was just waiting to be made.
1: Yeah, no, totally, mate. I'm also interested in like the weird and wonderful varieties you've got. Like you posted a picture yesterday. You've got like a couple of different cucumbers. Um, like zucchinis, tomatoes. Um, are you like more gravitated towards the weird and wonderful as a result of uh, being a chef as well?
2: Absolutely. Um, I'm just fascinated by the flavour sensation and and using flavours and tasting things that I've never tried before. And that's what's attracted me to to growing things that you might not necessarily find in other people's patches or in the supermarket. So for instance, I want to grow every single variety of cucumber you can get your hands on so I know what they all taste like.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's <laughs> such a good way of doing it. I just want a wall chart now and just tick them all off.
2: Exactly. Like it's Catching like Pokemon. Pokemon. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> There you go. But, but I see everything has different flavour. Like we need to look beyond the walls of the supermarket where that's such tunnel vision of fruit and veg and... Uh, most of uh, like the box customers or if I go to a market they don't even know what a kohlrabi is or if you've got like you've got purple kale or rainbow chard people so I've had people think it's rhubarb the rainbow chard yeah also Mitch as well like working with chefs all the time they're always interested in the size of stuff like even if I cut microgreens they're like super pacific one centimetre me and Chris spoke before the podcast started about uh, courgettes and he said the courgettes, his chef wants them as small as possible. Yeah. Can you like talk about like certain specifics and how you get the most out of that veg or is it, is it to do with taste? Is it to do with plating up?
2: Uh, I think you hit the nail on the head with both of the things that you just said, there taste and plating up. Um, So obviously courgettes, when they're smaller, they taste a lot different to when they're bigger. They just, They don't really get any tastier. They just have more water content. And with plating up, you can do a lot more with a, a small courgette than you can with a big one. The problem I find with sometimes with chefs is it might be a little bit unsustainable growing food for chefs because they want a specific size to go on this plate where, as a grower, you have really good, tasty food, but the chef doesn't want it. So then you're left with stuff that you might not necessarily be able to get rid of.
0: Yeah, and yeah, it leads to a disparity in, in making money as a grower as well, I think, sometimes, because you can you say, right, I'll pick that courgette now, and my price per kilo is this. If I leave it a week, it's going to double. <laughs> and so it can be, yeah, really tough with that. And and chefs don't want to pay any more money just because it's smaller. In actual fact, they're thinking it's going to be cheaper. So that then leads to sort of a, yeah, a breakdown in, in, in your business in some ways as well.
2: Yeah, chefs are notoriously hard to get along with. <laughs> especially uh, from the supplier chef situation
0: not as a podcast guest man though
1: <laughs> now, i think that's where you've got to diversify as a grower i'm kind of seeing that this year that whatever won't go in the boxes seem to go uh, to the chefs they've been really i've had borage uh, literally self-seed from last year and it is everywhere to the point where i can't believe it that seed got that far um because I don't know if a bird took it or the wind blew it, but I know how big the seeds can be. But borage, for me, it's like one of those weeds that I want because I charge like a, a nice price for the flower, and I'm probably making more for sometimes out of that weed being there, weed in inverted commas, um, than what's actually in the bed. <laughs> so I think I think it's cool to sometimes there's bits in your garden where which chefs might be more attracted to than you don't, than you don't realize i.e. being edible flowers that were pollinators and veg, if it's not grown to size, like a carrot, if the carrots are not growing too well,
2: like a micro carrot. Yeah. Micro carrots are a great, great one for chefs. I mean, there was a supplier that I used to use. Um, it was like a platform for, to link growers and chefs. So you could get things that you wouldn't really usually come across from your regular big suppliers. I think I was talking to you about it, Jack, when I come to see you. Mm. They're called Food Chain. Mm. And things like Sea Buckthorn and Cranberry Sea Kale, That these are things you can just go and pick at most beaches or along most streets. And they're like yeah. charging ridiculous prices for them.
0: Yeah, we just got a pack of seeds of Good King Henry, which most people are like, you're going to seed a weed. Like it literally does grow across the road, but you can eat the leaves off of that as like a salad or a herb. The like the the flower of it can be like fried up and it tastes, they call it poor man's asparagus. And it's it's something that's on the side of the road. and It's perennial as well. So you're going to save yourself a lot of work and it's going to be better for, the, yeah, better for growing. So there's so much there even as a like a, a veg box scheme like ours where you've got to have stuff available at regular times that's available to grow especially when you hit the perennials
2: yeah exactly and some the chefs love really weird and wonderful vegetables one of them being monk's beard agretti um yeah. a, a little fact about agretti is that um we used to burn it and use the ashes to make glass and it's where all the venetian oh. glass came from
0: that's wow Amazing! That's
1: a great fact. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's
1: a really salty
2: plant, isn't it? Yeah, um, it's. I think it tastes a bit like noodles. Mm. Even the like just using it as a as a noodle. Yeah, that's amazing. I I think I saw that in Soul Farm. He
1: he grows a lot of agretti under his tomato plants. Mm. But, go, talking about we um, like some of the varieties we're talking about being weeds. I think it segues quite nicely into foraging as well because. I think we're all, all into foraging and um, if, we de- if you deep dive on Mitch's Instagram, you've got some wicked mushroom foraging pictures, mate. Uh, yes. We, we both geeked out about that horse mushroom. Yeah, huge.
2: <laughs> that was found in the fields out the back, out the back here. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, I love foraging. Since I've started to grow, my spare time has become less and less. Um, so I haven't really been out foraging much this year. Mm. um but there's more to foraging than just mushrooms you know i love foraging for for leaves um a lot of the leaves that you forage for are really good for your gut and they're high in antioxidants things like jack by the hedge or mustard garlic i mean it's super good for you it's super abundant you can just go and pick it in most parks or even on the street corner you know mushroom wise and there's nothing more than excites a chef than wild mushrooms and right now it is peak mushroom season. Would you say that because it, it, the humidity's a lot earlier? Because I, I
1: would have said September, October, or, or are you talking about different types of mushrooms? Like, for example, chicken of the woods it rained a lot, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah. We've had a really wet summer, um, so chicken of the woods has been really abundant this year. Um, it's been just growing literally down every country lane I drive down. I, I see a chicken of the woods. But um, Porcini's, they're coming into season now and they're, they're probably the king of the mushrooms, in mm. my opinion. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've never
1: been lucky enough to find a sep yet.
2: Oh, I could take you out foraging to a cool little place not far from where the farm is. I could take you to a cool spot where I know they are.
1: Wait, uh, I'm <laughs> DMing you after this conversation. I need to
2: you have to keep it between you and I, though. Yeah, mate. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's like around here. There's a wild garlic spot that you're not allowed to talk about, but everyone knows about. It's like <laughs> as soon as you mention it, it's like Shh, don't tell everyone. It's like everyone knows it's there. <laughs> there's got a got brilliant um, book given to me not too long ago by a friend of mine called Ben. Um, the Foragers Calendar. It's a beautiful book, um, and the guy who's written it. I can't remember who's written it now, but I'll put it in the show notes. Um, has written a few like it, but it's just wonderful. But it just takes you through what's available in the UK by month by month, but almost as a story basis as well. And it's amazing because you just oh, I just want to go out today and just flick to that book and flick through and gives you good pictures and stuff. It's just cracking. Really good book.
2: I've actually got that book, but I've haven't read it. It's like it's a really beautiful cover on it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sort yeah. of greens and darkish. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely book, but I, I don't think it's one you can really, it's not a sit down by the pool kind of reads, do you know what I mean? It's not a page turner, no. but yeah, grab it for reference for each month. It's, it's wonderful. Um, Going back, I mean, we flicked right back to the beginning of your Instagram and noticed that when you started this journey, it was, it was sort of just over a year ago, right? Yes.
2: Yeah, so I planted my first thing in about September, October
0: last year. Cool. But but, I mean, when you first got the site and you were moving on, it looked like you started making compost as like one of the first things you did.
2: Yes. One of the first things we started to do was make compost because my girlfriend has horses.
0: Ah, perfect. Um,
2: (laughs) And horses shit a lot. So, (laughs) (laughs)
0: um,
2: yeah, I think one horse can produce something ridiculous like 25 kilos a day.
0: Wow. That's like a sack of spuds. A day yeah. in, in horse manure that's a that's a lot so you must have been able to produce a, a fair bit of compost for your site
2: yes exactly so we started off turning so we started off a big pile then turned it and then boarded that up and then turned that again and now that stuff will hopefully be ready in the next couple of weeks actually ready to spread this year if awesome. it doesn't have the dreaded aminos in there you know yeah So I'm going to do a test on it probably this week or next week. Um, I've just got some tomato seedlings and I'm just going to pop them in there, see how it goes. But to be honest with you, there's like lots of weeds growing on top of the heap and there's some broadleaf uh, plants in there. So I'm pretty confident that it hasn't got any in there, but you just can't be too sure.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. For anyone listening, aminopyrrolid is uh, remnants of, and you can correct me if I'm wrong because I always get these things wrong, but it's remnants of potential pesticides used in the past and it makes leaves curl up, doesn't it? And and then can have adverse effects on your veg growing.
2: Yeah, it's really nasty stuff. And I think, mm. Jack, you've actually had uh, a run in with this stuff before, haven't you? Yeah, half
1: my plot uh, last year. It was in the soil... Um, uh, just the compost didn't look the same as the year before even though I got it from the same site But honestly like you plant stuff and I remember Parsley and a couple of kale plants did not grow the whole season. Like they stayed the same size and then turn color uh, So you knew straight away something's wrong there um, But uh, there was potatoes outside and I just couldn't use them. They're, like they, they go spindly that they look sick for a start but it's the way they curl and mm. it's it's crazy what it does to them um but if you do a test as you said if you do bring any manure onto site test it first you said tomatoes um mitch but i think a bean plant as well might grow a little bit quicker so you yes, can see the effects um uh, just a little bit quicker and, and the bean plant having larger leaves i think it will just kind of show um, a lot quicker on like even the. Uh, some of the first leaves
0: okay yeah we had a a good batch of horse manure delivered and but you can as you say be careful can you and one of the two things that we got told to do was yes throw some bean seeds in it and the other was to just break up the manure well if it's been in a pile for a little while just break it up and see if there's any worms in there because if the worming medication that some horses have has continued through their body and then and then gone on through into the the manure and therefore your compost then yeah, it's going to have the same effect and you're not going to get as many worms in there or or, or if any. So um, they're two really good tips that we've picked up. But I'm sure you've noticed loads of worms in there.
2: Yeah, the worming uh, medicine for the horses is a bit of an issue. People want you to leave it for two years. Mm. Uh, We actually worm count. So we take samples of the horse manure and send it off to the vets and then they tell us if the horses need worming rather than just giving your horses the medicine every time. Um, oh, all of the food that we feed the horses is, is all organic to a degree we can't necessarily get organic hay all the time yeah but when we we get it when we can
0: that's awesome that's really like a conscious way of doing it and people that might have a small holding that are worried about using their own I mean that's a good way to good tips to have to to sort of yeah consciously be aware and and try to make sure that it's as usable as possible I love that
2: definitely
1: so so talking to talking about compost um who's like your inspiration Mitch Who, what kind of practices do you follow in your garden
2: there's one man that's inspired me throughout this whole thing is Charles Darding. um he is probably the biggest inspiration in my life um when I was younger it was a few chefs like Marco Pierre White but nobody has ever taken me like Charles Dalding has and opened my eyes to the world that's awesome man that's that's a huge compliment as well
1: uh, and, and people listening to the podcast know me and Chris also massive fans but we're advocates for his method as well because we're doing no dig and surely the day we met Mitch he was just coming back from uh spending a day at Homemakers as well and yeah, we wanna know like your thoughts on it, your thoughts on Charles's garden. Just like just elaborate a little bit more about your journey with No Dig and how you've seen the improvement and yeah. What what's your favourite part of it really?
2: Um, so first of all, homemakers is uh, it's as much about being self sufficient as it is growing vegetables. Down to the solar panels and the, the compost toilet and everything that Charles does is about a closed loop. And that's something that you don't really see from many growers, especially the ones that you get on TV. Definitely. Um, so some of the cool takeaways from there, which really stand, stood out was you, the use of copper tools and mm. how steel and iron tools disturb the soil magnetism where copper doesn't disturb the soil magnetism. That was something which is quite interesting. Um, just Charles's whole presence is very calm, and he he knows exactly why he's doing this particular thing, and he knows all about the soil life. And he was even doing; he had scientists there testing the soil, um, and with dug beds for the first six months of the growing season, they're not as productive as the second six months because they've had a bit of time to start repairing themselves. And that just goes to prove no dig in that small year um, experiment. Mm. Um, To the second part of your question, the results that I've had, I mean, they just speak for them for themselves. Really. I'm on really heavy clay Um, If you scroll back down through my Instagram, before I'd built any no-dig beds, um, my whole veg pot completely flooded. It was all grass then, um, but I'd like sectioned it all off and had the fence put up. And it was completely flooded um, because it's such heavy clay. And people said that I wouldn't be able to grow beans in heavy clay. People said I wouldn't be able to grow carrots. Uh, And I've had unbelievable success with everything. Um everything is just so abundant it 's absolutely booming i 've got sunflowers which are like ten foot at the minute i haven 't posted about them, but they 're literally like ten foot
1: yeah that 's incredible we awesome. we we've both seen the no dig I know Chris does a lot of tests um you going test with your dad as well, Chris with <laughs> a dig and no dig, but it 's like kind of shaking up old norms of. I think it does stem a little bit from that dig for victory and back in the, the wartime and stuff. But that the beautiful thing is that he's backing it with science and a lot of people need that backing. They don't want to see it as like an esoteric thing, like, oh, that sounds a bit hippie or whatever. But the results speak for themselves, as we know. So I think now we're just carrying on Charles's work, shouting out about no dig and this. I think it's great. So, man, it's awesome to hear that, someone potentially might have a patch of land that they would see as flooded and then you've just explained it that way and um yeah inspire them hopefully.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean where the horses are in their fields it's just like a clay pit. You know you're on heavy clay, you know what it can be like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um so I I, I wouldn't I wouldn't worry about the soil that you've got. I wouldn't even worry about soil testing it because you've got what you've
1: got. Yeah. I I didn't do a soil test at all. I just cracked on with it. I I probably would have been smart too, to find out a little bit more information, but yeah, you feel like you can just kind of, I feel the way Charles delivers it, uh, what you're saying in in being quite calm, he just says, just do it, just give it a go. And the results do definitely speak for themselves. Uh, All three of us have seen great things from it.
2: Yeah. And I totally agree with the fewer weeds. I mean, I've, pulled up i haven't spent any time weeding and i went on top of on top of a very weedy lawn um i use a double layer of cardboard uh Mm. just because i had loads of cardboard from moving and collecting loads of cardboard and i just thought two layers might work a bit better um so that definitely i think helped with the weeds had a few thistles come through and a little bit of bindweed but definitely works with the fewer weeds
0: and I love what you said there about, but just people said you couldn't grow this and couldn't grow that. We had exactly the same carrots was the big one, almost left a big bundle of carrots on someone's doorstep locally who said you'll never grow them in that. You hope you get the receipt for the land sort of person like having a right guts in the pub. And, and it's it's the case. I mean, notoriously raspberries won't grow, grow in heavy wet soil. We've grown raspberries in in no dig beds on top of heavy wet soil this year and they've, they've done amazingly. And I just think anyone who's listening thinks, People telling them that they won't be able to grow in that bit of land or there's a reason that bit of land or that allotment hasn't been taken or whatever, don't believe them because <laughs> with, with the no-dig method and, and, and the methods around that, you can you can grow almost anything. You really can. Maybe not bananas, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to be able to grow bananas, though, and avocados. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> One day, mate, uh, I might have seen on my Instagram, I just picked figs from... Uh, italian guys gardening uh elm park like dagnum and these four fig trees are unbelievable it's like me for me it was like christmas going around there seeing these four trees littered with figs size of like tennis balls and it just kind of shows that you can push the boat out here i wouldn't think they'd grow well here but they're, they're thriving um i don't think it's a climate thing i think some some things there's an actual map which we will put in the show notes i can't remember the name and it highlights countries that um, have the similar climates so for example Mm -hmm. the uk has the same as argentina and new zealand avocados grow well in new zealand so it kind of is saying that we can grow avocados here Um, so yeah it's quite interesting i think we're going to start seeing more people push the boat out in the next couple of years of growing weird and wonderful things and just seeing if it
2: if it can work yeah i'm trying to get so i've got a manuka uh start of a manuka bush at the minute which i'm going to try and start propagating and hopefully just have like a whole row of manuka bushes because they only have a short flowering time but they're absolutely stunning when they flower and the bees love them
0: Mm there's some amazing stuff like that this year because I I think I saw that map or you might have shown me Jack and saw that we're close to New Zealand I was like well I'm going to grow kiwis then <laughs> I love a kiwi fruit worry about the footprint of getting them here so I was like all right and it's doing all right I mean I've kept it in a pot in a polytunnel for its first year but this is shooting up and maybe I'll uh, have kiwi plant <laughs> kiwis fruit next year in uh, in that'd Sussex be pretty
2: impressive be that'd great. be amazing
0: um, so I just want to, uh, sorry, Mitch, I keep jumping back to the chef thing, but I think that's fine. we, we get people starting up with ventures on this book. I mean, we're all at all level of food growers, but one thing that I know, um, from previous experience has sometimes been daunting is how to approach chefs, especially of higher end restaurants or ones where, you know, they've got a supplier. Can you, with your insight, having been a chef, give us any sort of tips on, on approaching them? What, what? My opinion of chefs right is that they're always super busy and have very little time, and I know that from working with them for the last year. so how how can you not be a pain in the ass but still still getting their good graces?:
2: uh, Firstly, I just would talk to them normally as they're a normal person. Yeah. don't be worried about talking to a chef if they're busy, you know and secondly, if you have a good product, they will want to talk to you. Mm. Um so personally I think the best way of going to deal with a chef is going to the actual restaurants or kitchens themselves with a basket or a box of produce and say hello could I speak to the head chef please this is what I've got give them the goods and then you go away and see if you get a response That would be the way I would approach things.
1: How how Would you even try it with social media first to like an arrange a
2: meet or? You definitely could. I think with social media, I think that's a great way of, of connecting to chefs or restaurants because you could then, they know that you're a small supplier and you're not just a big wig trying to get hold of more business, but you actually are looking to supply a chef with some really good quality produce.
1: Yeah. No, amazing, mate. I I think it's totally worked uh, for me. Going into the restaurant, obviously not in working hours. You've got to go when it's uh, when they're not busy and losing their head. I've noticed that. Um, But yeah, you just got to go as like a say that they're prepping or something, so they can
2: give you five minutes. Yeah. So I think I think the best way to deal with a chef is don't pester chefs. You know, They, they are busy people, but ultimately they they have the same outlook on life as us they just want the best tasting food possible
1: yeah that's amazing that's that's cool actually i think that relationship us guys have i i geek off as chefs and i know the chefs i work with like geek out of what i'm doing they're always like i'd love to come to the garden and i'm always going into the kitchen and asking for a recipes or preserving recipes or just saying I've got loads of cabbage. Can we make some sauerkraut? And they're like, yeah. And they'll do it so quickly. Like for me, it would be like a lot of hours building up jars and and they just done, vat pack it and go and chuck it my way, which I, I love. I think the relationships between chefs and growers needs to bond a lot more. It does annoy me in London, especially the, the buzzword of farm to table. Is it, it's a buzzword. It, it, there's not a lot of people knowing the chefs. They're still getting it for a wholesalers, but, uh, for, for example, in my case, I'd l- like to know my chefs really well and they, I think they absolutely love it, that they can kind of ring me if they're in trouble and go, I need this, I need that. And yeah, they know they're getting quality as well.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think the problem with a lot of restaurants is in, not just in London, but across the world, um, is seasonal eating needs to be start it needs to come from from the chefs and from restaurants if you can go to a restaurant and only get things that are in season hopefully that will inspire people to eat what's in season at home too
0: yeah especially through the winter
2: yeah we shouldn't be eating tomatoes and cucumbers in winter Mm. unless it was like last year and people were still harvesting uh, tomatoes in up until december
0: (laughs) it was a crazy year as well though wasn't it I think that that relationship we talk about is so important there, though, as well. And, and Jack, you mentioned it's a two-way street that you they can help you out if you're in need of, yeah, like sauerkraut or whatever. And it, it's so so important. And then, yeah, the the point you there make their Mitch, is so important because those sorts of things do come from the top down, especially when you're in winter and it's been weeks and weeks of uh, of cauliflower or turnips and or, or just root vegetables, and you're getting real tired of it. The Chefs can inspire you and show you what, what can really be made with, with those things that notoriously as we grew up, it was like boiled carrots or mashed in swede, whereas they can really sort of inspire you and in, in how to use those vegetables to, to your advantage and, and bring out the flavours of, of seasonal veg.
2: Absolutely. You know, people the English are notoriously bad for not eat, for not knowing how to cook or just <laughs> people think of the English as roast dinner and fish and chips. And you know what? They're not wrong. That's mm. all we do.
0: Yeah. And, and that's the funny thing as well. You look at roast dinner and if you cook a roast, or not, not yourself, you're obviously a chef or, or probably not any of us three, but notoriously, if it's a roast dinner, the veg on the plate is boiled. It's not really seasoned. You haven't thought up a, a flavor around. Haven't like caramelized the cabbage or anything or sauteed the carrots. It's just, yeah, boiled carrots, carrot. And it's just, yeah, they're like a literally a, a tasteless side. And, the, and we're making it taste by adding a ton of gravy to it
2: growing up I could not stand eating roast dinners as a a child I used to have to be forced to eat it and even now that the the feeling of like over boiled carrots and cauliflower makes me feel sick um and I would actually have to ask for my vegetables to be raw on my roast dinner to get around that feeling um yeah and (laughs) Uh, that's really put me off vegetables as a kid being fed overcooked roast dinners
0: it's funny isn't it because we can't exactly blame our parents for it because it's come down the line hasn't it it's come down that's just the way it was done and, 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 and yeah it's it's really funny that how that adds on there's a fantastic story about it was about roast chicken but they there was a, a program that had sort of three generations of people cooking so it was like grandma mum, and daughter and the daughter said how do you cook a roast chicken she said oh you cut the top off put it in the oven cook it for blah, 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 take it out. To the mum, they said, oh, you cut the top off, put it in the oven. Blah, blah. Then we went to the grandma and said, how would you cook a chicken? Cut the top off, put it in the oven. Why would you cut the top off? Well, because when we were growing up, we didn't have an oven big enough to have the whole chicken in. <laughs> and so that, that, that cutting the top off was purely out of necessity, but it just been handed down and handed down. Um, and none of it's ever questioned.
2: Exactly. And that's what I find relatable from cooking and growing and there's so many transferable skills from the kitchen into the gardening but the first thing is is asking yourself why people don't do this enough you need to ask yourself why do we do this Mm. why do you sear off uh the beef before you put it in the oven to roast why do we why do we dig the soil before we plant our seeds into it People don't don't ask the question why. They just do it because it's what they've known for years and years and years.
1: Well said, man. That's brilliant. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, I feel like there is a lot of transferable skills from the kitchen into growing. Uh, Just being organised and having a methodical way of thinking and planning out your your garden like you would in the kitchen with your Maison Plus. Just your knowledge of vegetables in general because um, a lot of, chefs to have a very good knowledge of food and as a person that is not a chef and has just started growing they might not necessarily know what a kohlrabi is but as a chef I, would go, oh, I know what a kohlrabi is i know exactly what i can do with it and i know so now i've learned how to grow kohlrabi and now i know what to do with it so you would know the amount to grow because people might end up with having 20 kohlrabi and and have no idea what to do
1: Yeah, so I think uh, a lot of gardeners, I think they enjoy the planting of things rather than the harvesting. So it's like I want to almost like to fill up spaces, or I like that for, or I like to grow kohlrabi, as you said, to look at it, but I have no idea what to do with it, and end up giving it to friends. People like, like when I first got an allotment, I grew runner beans because that's what you do on an allotment—you grow beans—and I have never i didn't know what to do with them um but yeah i think it's important to any new grower is grow what you want to eat don't grow to grow grow what you want to eat because ultimately you stop some waste as well although you can give it to friends and family but when you grow what you want to eat i feel like you start to realize how little space you need to actually grow the food you want to eat um start to appreciate you can grow on a small space you don't need a lot of room uh, to grow a lot of food
2: i totally agree with you and um a lot of people have been messaging me on instagram and asking me about getting started with growing and i would never recommend anybody would convert the size of the patch of their garden that i have starting off because it can be very overwhelming and i've knew the job at hand converting this much garden space when I did it. I knew what I wanted to get out of it and I knew the time that it was going to take. To a certain extent, it took a lot more time than I thought. (laughs) Um, And I wanted to to be able to learn how to be as self-sufficient as I could. And Charles Darden uh, at Homemakers, he actually has a small garden and I think he said in one, I might be wrong, but in a three meter by 1.5 meter bed he harvests 300 kilos of
0: vegetables a year wow
2: which yeah. is insane mm. it's like, smaller than the size of a front garden in london
0: yeah well it shows what tiny space you can grow and we were blown away by that last year so much like you were just saying mitch we we've we moved on to a piece of land that's just under four acres um and we sort of we still underestimated how long it would take to, to get growing on that, but we we understood that we couldn't just <laughs> get it all going at once. So we just started on one block last year, which is like 30 meters by 16 or something, and then a polytunnel. We were able to produce between 35 and 40 veg boxes a week at least through the summer seasons and we we're just blown away because realistically when you compare that, that's like two allotments. And we could grow for 30 families, 40 families a week on that, that small amount of space. And that's not with the, the skills that, that some growers have in their arsenal to, to produce even more. And that was our first sort of year on this scale. So we were blown away by how much you can grow in a small space. It's so inspirational. Wow,
2: it is amazing to think that in such a small space, you can feed 40 families.
0: Yeah yeah it blew us away it really does it? and we were we were all, well we're still aspiring to the numbers that sort of Jean-Martin 48 says you can feed 200 families on two, which when you compare that to the fact that some farms are hundreds of acres and just do carrots and barely touch 200 families with those it's, it's insane isn't it really
2: I'm surrounded by by big industrial farms on mm. both sides of uh of our land we have one side which is sugar beet and the other side which is wheat mm. just deserts
0: there's no life in the soil do you see any adverse effects come over your way from that or make some sort of mitigate that
2: i would like to say i could see a difference but there's a i can't so our our land is a haven of biodiversity mm. and uh, out there is just monocultures there's not really much going on you know mm. There's a few mice running around out there, but
0: that's
1: about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's nice to be the, the guy in between, isn't it? Sometimes like my, for me, I've got the M25 running right next to the farm and I feel like what I'm doing is a big like F you to that. And it's sometimes <laughs> nice to be showing the way, no matter how small, but the ripple effect of showing that on Instagram and inspiring other people to grow food. I think as a bigger impact, than we all realize
2: yeah it's difficult sometimes. It does get me down when I see the sprayers come out and spraying it up 30 feet from my house, and, uh, and there's nothing I can do about it.
1: Oh definitely. But le- le- leading on to that, Mitch, that wh- what's, um, what's the future for Mitch grows? Are you, um, are you just enjoying the journey now and then
2: seeing what comes? I'm very much at the beginning of this journey and I don't know where it's going to take me. Um, There's a few routes that I would like to go down. There's a few things that I also have in the pipeline which I'm quite excited for. Um, I've got a big... I'm turning 30 this year and um, I'm joining the Dirty 30 Club and by the time I'm 40, I would like to be able to say that I've done a big talk or something like TED Talks or... Uh, like a big talk, something like that. That's something that I would like to get into public speaking. Um, I'd just be like to be able to inspire other people to grow um, from very much from people that haven't grown into just becoming a little bit more self sufficient. I don't want to be on the sort of the JM Fortier level or the Charles Darwin level very much helping people take the dive into growing. Mm -hmm. And I think I would like to become self-sufficient as much as I can.
1: Yeah, the way the world's going is that that's the big one, I think. Um, just bulletproof, proving yourself a future. I think everyone needs to do it just for necessity. Um, uh, I think it's going to be very much very important they talk about food shortages, I don't want to talk about anything negative on this podcast at all, but if it's kind of going down that route of like Brexit and I can't get food here, it would just be cool if people just turn to their own garden and go, oh, I'm just going to get my dinner from there tonight. Mm. Um, and that's a that's a very beautiful thing. And uh, talking about big talks, Mitch, as well, I think you relate, like a few of us growers on Instagram now, we're just normal guys that hopefully you resonate through our accents as well because we might sound like your mates down the pub or just people that you know and and we're trying to but we're talking about growing and hopefully that inspires you rather than saying it it being a class thing and listening to someone that doesn't resonate with you and i think that's really cool and that's why I, i like your you mitch because man like quirky guy full of tattoos as well it's just like just you resonate with a lot of people out there as well. And being a chef, coming from a, that that industry as well, I think it's re- really people are going. Oh man, I'm listening to this guy. I like everything he's saying and he's doing.
2: Yeah, I appreciate that a lot, mate. Um, I really do. Um, and I, I, it's quite hard for me to comprehend because, I mean, quite quickly I've built up a following, and people are like saying that I'm inspiring them, and I'm just like, wow, you know, this is this is crazy that people are actually being inspired by what I'm doing so much. So that going back to the talks thing, there's a a festival called Albra food and drink festival, which is quite big in its own right. And they've asked me to, to do a talk there on at the festival about growing because they've been following my journey. And even they was inspired and said that my passion comes through. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty interesting.
0: You said yes, right?
2: I did say yes, and now I'm really (laughs) nervous. And they even got me to, they even want me to do a um, a cook along after the talk. So, like, uh, I'll have like 10 people and I'll teach them how to cook something. So, I'm going to be using Marvelous Mushrooms Grow Kits to teach them all to make something out of
0: mushrooms. Wicked. Sweet. Great collab as well.
2: Yeah, I, I I really like uh, it's Craig from Marvelous Mushrooms. Is it? Yeah, it's it Craig. is Craig. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I was lucky enough to win a competition, and he sent me some a grow kit, and I just had a great response. I posted the picture; it got like three thousand likes, and then we started talking to each other, and I, and then when the opportunity for the food festival come along. I had a little think, I was like, what can I do? What will grab the people's attention? I was like, I know, turning up with a huge block of mushrooms.
0: Mm.
1: That
2: that will that will capture people's attention. So I asked I asked Marvelous Mushrooms if they'd be interested in collaborating with me for that. And he said yes.
0: Sweet. That's awesome, because that's something people can take away as well. Like they can even if they've not barely any they can grab a mushroom kit and be growing their own food in no time
2: yeah and that's one of the cool things about jack that he's got the, the mushroom shipping container i mean that is absolutely sick
1: <laughs> yeah i'll tell you what, it saved my ass this year that container just the <laughs> indoor growing micros mushrooms but it just really validates for me that we can grow food in the cities in things like that and and on that small, like you, you saw it, Mitch, the, the grow tent was tiny. Yeah, I'm supplying the markets and they were going in all the veg boxes. Then I can even get like kilos to chefs as well. And it's just like, and I think you, was it you that said was like all those mushrooms just growing that tent? I think it was you. And then, um, yeah, it's just like, yeah, don't need a lot of space. And uh, it's it great. Right, let's get into the quick fire questions. <laughs> but we, uh,
0: put you on the spot for now Mitch
2: <laughs> I've been on the spot all afternoon <laughs>
0: <laughs> so let's kick it off then with the first one it's your favourite tool
2: I would say my phone but Jack said that on one of the earlier podcasts
0: <laughs> I like that you listened and did your homework though it's all good
2: um, my favourite tool would have to be my potting shed it's nice. not really a tool but it's it allowed me to get a head start in winter. Um, it's somewhere nice and uh, warm out of the wind to go and work and do all of my seed propagating and potting on. And I just enjoy having my cup of tea and watching YouTube in there in the mornings.
0: <laughs> and it doubled up as your your sort of greenhouse as well, didn't it? That's where you had you brought your seeds on.
2: Exactly. It brought all of my seeds on in there and and it really did save my bacon this year because of the really poor spring that we had with the late frosts and actually um i did actually have some frost damage in the potting shed even though it was heated had a small crack where the two panels of wood got uh joined up Mm. and it was the winds coming through the the crack which was a line of frozen plants
0: shows how cold it's been this year eh? yeah crazy
1: Yeah, second question, Mitch, is a crop that you grow that you either have difficulty growing or are you not getting as much from that crop?
2: I've got a few experimental plants on the go. Um, Wasabi, that's one. Mm -hmm. Um, That actually got obliterated by the frost, but it bounced back. Watermelons, (laughs) I should have grown them in the polytunnel, but they didn't work. They're outside, I've just left them there and Mashua the sort of the the uh, Andes tubers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think those are probably the, the ones that I probably shouldn't be growing here in the UK, but I'm going to give it a go anyway.
0: Uh, so who says you shouldn't, eh? <laughs> Jack exactly. bought a banana tree, I bought a kiwi, like, just give it a go. Uh, next one is your favourite farm hack.
2: Well, I think putting gravel boards around the, base of your polytunnel so you can strim up to the sides without hitting the plastic and ripping it is quite a
0: good one that's a great idea i'm having all kinds of problems i'm hands and knees with shears half the year with for those (laughs) that's a great idea love that yeah
2: that's quite a good one uh what other good hacks do do i have using charles Dowding's seed sowing timeline
0: oh nice Mm. Yeah,
2: that calendar well worth
1: it, isn't it? If you're a bit um, overwhelmed, I think.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I use that as as what to sow, winter. So Just because it's my first year growing, and, and it helps me be organised.
1: Yeah, and and also I don't. I I don't listen to seed packets, and it might sound mm. a bit weird to some people, but there's a lot of information on the back, and I think it's very generic. But you can sometimes push. Um, for example my girlfriend's mum was going for her seed packets the other day and she was like oh I can't sow turnips anymore because it said July I even know like now I'm sowing turnips for but because it said July she was like oh I'm not going to have any for Christmas now and I was like don't listen to it just just put it in just um, yeah sometimes just got there's a bit of information out there some great YouTube videos um, to say oh, what to grow now Um, but yeah sometimes just give it a go push the boundaries on it because your your environment might be different to what the baseline of
0: that they're following for example not all all zones are the same are they yeah and I I love the successions in that as well I think something that I made a mistake on sort of not first year properly growing but when I started growing veg back when was that you want to have and you were saying earlier Mitch you want to grow what you want to eat but if you just follow the seed packets or follow sort of conventional ways of doing it, you put all your seed in at the beginning and expect to have a supply of veg throughout the year. And you you sort of in your early years, you forget about that successional planting. And that, that obviously works with things like cucumbers and tomatoes. You plant it once and you keep getting crop, but your likes of your lettuce, your beetroot, even kohlrabi need to be regularly seeding. So following something like Charles's timeline is brilliant for that definitely
2: oh good another good hack is seaweed
0: mulch mm. Mm. are you getting that from the from the coast yourself
2: yeah I, awesome. I i only live luckily only five minute or five minutes away from the coast and there's like a tidal river where i get it from when the tide comes in the 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 river basically gets filled up and then whatever when the river goes out you can just pick up all the seaweed that's washed up which isn't connected any to any rocks so mm. in quite a sustainable way of collecting seaweed
0: and do you prepare it in any way do you wash it off or dry it or
2: i don't wash it off no um i did ask charles when i was there and he said don't worry about washing it either the salt levels they won't they won't harm your plants
0: awesome good to know
2: what is the least favorite crop you grow i've had a lot of trouble with growing beetroot um just the mice keep eating my beetroot there's nothing i can do to stop them um so beetroots there and i would probably say oh uh okra because it all not no matter what i do it just kept mutating i don't know if i had a dud seed packet or something it's a bit of a toughie okra
0: so the final one it's the one that everyone's been waiting for it's uh do you prefer a walk around the farm with a morning coffee or tea or an evening beer
2: uh, it's a no-brainer for me. Um, it's a morning
0: tea or coffee. Team team tea, or is it is it tea, or is it coffee? Depends on the morning. <laughs> Does that depend on the night before?
2: Uh, I don't actually drink alcohol anymore, so <laughs> no. It's, but if I've had if I've had a late one, then yeah, definitely a coffee. I've been coffees for the last couple of days with all my family that have been over
0: yeah fair play
1: (laughs) I think we need to we need to like have like a a chart of team tea coffee versus beer as well I think coffee's winning isn't it it
0: is yeah it is I'm sure it is I'll, uh, I'll tally them up after this
1: No, it's been a pleasure, Mitch. I really appreciate you
0: coming on.
2: No worries. Thank you for having me, guys.
0: If people want to follow you and find out more, where are they going to?
2: You can hit me up on Instagram at Mitch underscore grows. I'm also on TikTok with the same user name. Um, I do have a Twitter, but I
0: rarely use it. Awesome. Mitch, thanks so much for coming on, pal. Really appreciate it.
2: You're welcome, guys. Thank you very much for having me. See you.